Hello and welcome to Mastering Dungeons for another week of D&D fun and excitement and Teos Abadilla. I'm Sean Merwin and I'm here with Teos. Sean, it's so good to see you. I'm actually looking at you and hear you, which everybody gets to enjoy. Yeah, you're not smelling me though, which is <laughs> which just adds to the uh, adds to the experience. I heard there's a new virtual tabletop that uh, adds smell-o-vision, and yes. I'm looking forward to trying it out. You know that if you're going, if you're missing your convention experience, <laughs> smell is is really the uh, the part that you miss the most. That is a thing that's changed since the pre fourth edition days. It's true. It's true. Uh, hygiene has become uh, much much better. much better, and hopefully, you know, one of the very few benefits of this whole pandemic has been hopefully people are are taking more care of themselves hygienically uh, i hope so i'm yeah. i'm worried that there's someone out there who hasn't you know showered in a year but well i'm sitting right here <laughs> <laughs> oh good good times Good times yeah. here. We're, we're not uh, wacky or crazy at all. In case people wonder whether we edit our podcasts or, you know, and plan them or script them. That's what I meant. Script. This is yeah. like the obvious. No, they clearly don't because who would script that? It, exactly. Exactly. And before but, we get ourselves. Oh, go ahead. I was just I was going to say that is the perfect tie in to our news. Yes. I don't know how, but that is the perfect <laughs> tie in to our news. Oh, <laughs> scripting. I see. Sean's a little slow today. So. <laughs> Speaking of scripts, as Teos so uh, adeptly put like it, butter. that's right. There is more news on the D and D TV series, and I don't know if it's news so much as great fodder for speculation. Yeah, uh, a gentleman named Derek Kolstad is the writer who has been tasked to develop the pitch for the Dungeons and Dragons show as part of Hasbro TV. And if you are familiar with the John Wick movies, specifically the first three, as well as the Falcon and the Winter Soldier series for Marvel, uh, he is a writer on those. So he knows what he's doing, one would imagine. Apparently, yeah. So he has delivered a series Bible to Hasbro, and he met with an interview with a Collider.com which then led to some of these little nuggets being dropped. Um, he says that he has been inspired by the fantasy genre, citing Lord of the Rings, Narnia, and novels, uh, especially uh, novels like Dragonlance, definitely steeped there in D&D goodness. However, he wants what he's working on, this, this uh, series, to be narrower in scope. And the quote was, I want to do a tinier sliver of that world, and it's been a joy. And I, that heartens me that yeah. you're not going to try to do too much to tell too big of a story, especially in a limited run television uh, show. Yeah, this uh, whole interview was full of sort of like healthy bits, right? It felt mm -hmm. like you're like, oh, good. I'm, I'm glad to hear you thinking that way and saying that. And Yeah. Any other quotes you wanted to uh, point out? Yeah. I mean, he, he talks about how I think in Dungeons & Dragons, who has this massive dedicated community of acolytes, I don't want to suddenly throw everything on screen and say, here's the buffet. You'd much, much rather keep the story intimate. When you think of our favorite movies, I'd rather do the first blood version. It's a guy in the woods being hunted. And it's very small, but you allude to the other things through conversation. And I just that's really interesting, right? That just sort of this, like, yeah, let's let's tell a story. And at one point, The Mandalorian was mentioned. 
mm-hmm. right? Which is kind of that, right? Star Wars is so enormous. Right. But if you initially kind of focus, we're, we're wrapped up in that tale of these characters, and then we can get a little bigger when we want to, right? And pull in a lot of that lore, and it and it still works. Mm-hmm. And it's it's interesting to me, yeah, using the Mandalorian as an example, Star Wars is not just a setting, but Star Wars is in itself a story that has sort of a a fictional it's a plot you can follow it's stories you recognize when you throw dungeons and dragons out into a casual conversation where you may or may not know if people play the game there is not that single story that comes to mind wow that's a good point and so it's it's challenging in that sense to to look at dungeons and dragons in terms of a story because it's more it's both more than just a story and less than just a story so I, I I get that. And I like to actually like the first blood example because, you know, if for those of us who were around when that movie first came out, we think of Rambo, right? John Rambo is the main character in first blood. But when you think of Rambo, you don't think of that movie that, that the original first blood movie, which is very, it's very intimate. It, you know, it's yeah. not, it's not this sort of mockery of itself that the later movies became. Yeah. Uh, and so it's it's hard to think sometimes of D and D and restrained and intimate in the same thought, <laughs> right? Because yeah. just if you don't play, then you just have this idea of of the you know dragons and all this uh, enormous, uh, yeah. huge s- stories, be- fantasy beyond the the pale. Uh, whereas if you do play, you know that there can be intimate moments in the game. Uh, although they're not always true for the the group that you might play with, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. you know it's it's different, but it can be the same. So we'll we'll wait and see. That's interesting. Yeah, you know, and maybe that's a thing that the old cartoons sort of did well, right? Because it took in its sort of silly way, right? The idea of these folks at an amusement park, which mm-hmm. is what happens in the in the original, you know, cartoon, and and they end up going through a Dungeons and Dragons ride magically into this world. And then they have to figure the world out. Like that was almost a good way to tell this kind of a story, right? Of what is Dungeons and Dragons. And I'm curious with both the TV show and the movie, how do you tell, how do you communicate that this is like a story or a thing that can happen, but mm-hmm. that there isn't the story? Like the Lord of the Rings is the story, right? Exactly. Like Dragonlance is the story. Right. But how do you communicate that it's a story? And we see that Dragonlance, it's jarring all the time, right? The story versus your story as players and GMs or as the adventures, like it, it fights. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So, you know, I think small and intimate, especially in a television series as opposed to a movie, is is the right approach to start to take. Um, yeah. The, the problem, the challenge is always going to be giving enough to the hardcore fans to have them not destroy the internet uh, because they're not happy. This could be any, any fantasy story. How, how come you're calling it Dungeons and Dragons? So it's going to be finding that sweet spot between small and intimate, but also touching on the themes and the sort of Easter eggs, maybe that would keep a rabid D and D fan uh, pacified. Yeah. And and he says that, 
right now a lot could change he's working on sort of the macro level and i guess then a more micro he's working on characters and specific aspects and he sort of made a, a point about how like you know you can sort of do whatever you want to the larger story but but you know my characters i care about or something like that right um and he also said that they were looking at sort of a, a disney plus approach where you have six to ten episodes and that's not just disney plus you're seeing this a lot now where it's fewer episodes but done well mm-hmm. um what do you call it a serialized show much like the old radio which i thought was an interesting comment yeah yeah you have to tune in next week to continue the story of right green lantern yeah. right yeah so- which i think we we love that when that when that when it works right i mean the mandalorian has done that really well you, you get excited about where, where is this leading yeah. And there was one quote that was called out where the, the interviewer wasn't quite sure what he meant when uh, he said he mentioned the underdark mm-hmm. and the interviewer deeper wasn't deeper. Yeah. Go deeper into and deeper underdark. into the underdark. And he, the interviewer wasn't sure if he meant like capital U underdark as in where the drow live and where the Durgar live or if he meant underdark as in you know, sort of the darker aspects of the fantasy setting. Uh, so that will be interesting to see as well. Yeah. yeah. Very interesting. And he's clearly aware of, of sort of the canon of everything and, and how D&D fans work and what they're, what they, he talks about that. Um, he doesn't want to go into the middle of the mythos. I want to come near the end where everything is canonical. It's biblical. It's happened or it's about to happen. That way you can revisit certain sequences and storylines that everyone loved in the past through flashback, but where we go is new. The unique yet familiar of all of it all is why we return to the games we love. And that's a very interesting right. comment. I, I think what that really says more than anything is we're not going to do Dragonlance. We're not going to do Ravenloft. We're not going to do the Temple of Elemental Evil. Right. As much as I would love to see a Village of Hamlet uh, yeah. TV, TV yeah. show, uh, you know, they're not going to do that. They may refer back to it, but this is going to be something brand new. Temple is probably the one I would think you could do. Like it, it has a neat right. larger story and, and good elements that you could capture right. into yep. the show. You start in the small town, you meet those characters, you become intimate with those characters, you get grow attached to them. Then you go off to the moat oh, house. The then moat you go house. off to the moat house. But the in old. the background, there's there's that temple but there's all the factions within the temple that yeah. you can do some cool dramatic things with that yeah it would uh, work it would work but yeah i don't think we're going to see that uh soon <laughs> greyhawk yes uh so the folk of the Feywild survey is now up for you to take on the wizards.com website so a couple episodes ago we gave a brief overview of what's in the unearthed arcana unearthed arcana called folk of the Feywild. so uh, if you've reviewed that offering from unearth arcana you can go take the survey and give them your thoughts on the design i have done so i did my duty mm-hmm. and sly flourish has some thoughts that teos is going to tell us about yeah he uh has uh, apparently a youtube channel i thought he was just on twitter uh. <laughs> i'm kidding i'm kidding <laughs> But he, uh, he talked about the three of five collection quest. And this is his concept of how we often see the trope when we're in an adventure. Either we're designing it or we're running something that's established where you must get all of these things and do something with them. Five dragon masks, nine puzzle cubes. Um, and he says this is sort of fragile design because if you just lose one, you can't do the thing. 
Um, a single faction, sometimes even by design, can take one away from you, and you must then deal with that. And, and it doesn't always create fun. Um, players don't usually want their keys to be stolen or whatever it is that they have. And so what he says is, what if you just go for the majority? And the number can be anything. He suggests an odd number so that it's not, you know, you don't have an equal share. But it can be three of five keys, seven of 11, whatever. And so if this magic door to get into this tomb requires three of five keys, you just have to get some of them. And that gives you some options, right? So you can decide whether you want to uh, go after certain ones. And I was sort of thinking about in Indiana Jones, uh, Temple of Doom, where, you know, this stone is important to the village. So if you needed X stones, you could actually say, you know what? I want the village to keep that. Mm -hmm. So kind of cool. Yeah. And you don't necessarily need to tell your players that this is the three of five rule. You can just say you need three keys to get through this door. And there could be 12 keys out there in the world and they only need to find those three. They don't need to know about the other nine. Yeah. And I don't necessarily have a problem. I I don't kind of fully embrace that it's problematic to have, you know, five of five or whatever. But, but I do think that it's important for both designers and DMs to think through that there can be other options and that what you choose, the more important part is use deliberate design, right? Mm -hmm. So if you want all five, make that work. If you want just three or five, you know, and think of the whys, um, you know, one thing that sometimes annoys me is when an adventure that's published gives me 11 locations, but I only need to visit three. That can also be a thing that's a detriment because I feel like I paid for all of it and I want to run all of it. Right. Yeah. It's just, you know, it's you as the DM have the ability to change things. So, you know, even if there is an adventure out there where they need five keys and for some reason, some player character finds the first key and says, oh, if we destroy this, everything will be good because they're confused and they destroy the, the one of those five keys, <laughs> you know, you as a DM can always say, Oh, you need four keys to get in. Uh, oh, yep. Yep. So, but it's, yeah. I mean, it's, it's an interesting thought, uh, exercise of thought and design to, to make it, make sure it works well yeah. in, in the flow of any adventure. It also made me think of, you know, we sort of did this. Uh, I don't think we did it on purpose, but in the Ori of the Wanderer, the acquisitions mm-hmm. and corporate adventure, um, there are impacts based on how many sort of pieces of this artifact you get. Um, but it works regardless, right? You mm-hmm. get, you can get to what happens at the end, irregardless of the number of pieces you recovered. It has an impact. It matters, but it, but it doesn't. It's not a a gate. You know, it's not like you must have all pieces or something like that. And and I think that gives you more options in all the various scenes because of that approach. Yeah. And and what Mike's article really talks about without talking about it is putting gates in your adventure yeah. and you know it's a common trope to do that so uh, characters get the right amount of experience or the right amount of play or the right amount of treasure before they move on to the next section but it's also problematic to put gates in because sometimes gates stay locked even though you want them open so yeah. just think about gates uh, in your adventures so this guy Mike Shea apparently also has a blog no you, uh, really yeah, uh, I mean, he's everywhere. Twitter, blog, and uh, YouTube, YouTube stream. Next, you're going to tell me he's on Twitch, and then no, blow my mind. Preposterous. But uh, but on this blog, he said he his his subject was safety tools. Um, just very quickly to say that's also really good to look at. He focuses focuses on two techniques. 
lines and veils, where lines are topics that should never come up at all, and veils are topics where you want to tread carefully, handle it off screen or in the abstract. Uh, and then pause for a second the idea that at any time, anyone in the game can say, hold on a second, um, I'm not quite comfortable with this, or I want to ask a question about this or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he also shares some tools like XCard and Script Change, uh, which have cards like Fast Forward, Pause, and Rewind that players can use. So a number of links and useful pieces there. Mm-hmm. Any thoughts on this, Sean? Uh, not really. I think we've talked about safety tools before and, you know, it's always good to use. It's better to have the tools available and never use them than to need them and not have them there. So, uh, yeah. And if you're going to, if you're just starting to think about that, Mike's article is a, is a great place to start. And then you can dig further in, uh, based on his links. You know, on that pause for a second, that's a tool that I like to use. Um, I mean, it is for, for safety reasons, but almost in any reason, whenever a player does a thing that other players or characters may not like, mm-hmm. I, I think of it as bullet time, you know, where you can pause and rotate the camera in any angle. That's how I imagine it in my brain when I do it. But I'll go like, all right, so you, you know, move towards the defenseless goblin with your blade. Everybody sees this. You see their reactions. I want all the other players to tell me what, what your characters are thinking when you see that he is intending to do this, right? And then they get to, you know, okay, so you see that she doesn't like that idea at all. And you know, now let's have a little conversation about whether you want to carry forward with that action that everybody thinks is a terrible, horrible idea. Right. And then you can undo that, right? But that, so I, I love doing that whole pause on a game. Yeah, it's a perfect way in a group storytelling game to remind everyone that it is a group storytelling game. And just because you have initiative or just because you have the ability to do something doesn't mean you should do it, even though it's something maybe your character would do. Um, yeah. So right. you know, it, it's just a good reminder of, of why we play D and D as opposed to any other sorts of games where it's not a group storytelling game. Right. Right. So, like shoots and ladders. Exactly, or Candyland. <laughs> uh, so the last bit of news is a new Adventures League uh, Plague of Ancients adventure is out. It is 10-06, The Fallen Star, by, call, by, oh, whoo, by Paul Gabat uh, up on the DMs Guild. A falling star far to the west heralds a new unknown. A Goliath hunting party returns to Wormdoom Crag, speaking a strange speaking of a strange creature. Perhaps it may be the key to discovering the source of the mysterious light. The adventure is for levels five through ten, and you Sounds can like pick spell it up. Jammer. Yep, you can pick it up on the DM's Guild. Spelljammer yet again confirmed. Again, yeah, falling star. We know what that is. Mm-hmm. That's Spelljammer talk. It's the Spelljammer talk for sure. Cool. I but be picking this up. Yeah. I'm about that. Absolutely. So um, now we are going to get into our dual Tasha's review, looking at Tasha's cauldron of everything from the player side and then from the DM side. And we are up to the rogue in our review of chapter one character options. And surprisingly, the rogue doesn't really have a great deal of new options or archetypes compared to some of the other classes. Hey, Sean, I think I know why. Why is that, Teos? Because it works as written. <laughs> that could be a reason why. Uh, Rogue, a very, very, always a very popular class. 
and uh, one that is not weak by any stretch right. of the imagination. Yeah, uh, lots for the rogue uh, players to do. Lots mm-hmm. of damage output. Lots of uh, uh, skills and special abilities. So the only optional feature for the rogue in Tasha's is called steady aim, which you get at third level. You want to talk about that? Yeah. So as a bonus action, which is always worth looking at because rogues often use cunning action with their bonus action, you can give yourself advantage on your next attack roll on the current turn. You can use this bonus action only if you haven't moved. And after you use the bonus action, your speed is zero until the end of your current turn. To me, this is a really fascinating bundle of, of design read. Like you can, yeah. you, can, you can answer questions with this text. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Yeah, I mean, it is the, the, the flavor of it is you are going to take a second and take a bead, draw a bead on someone, either mm-hmm. ranged or melee. So if you're going to do that, you can't be running around. You have to hold right. still. So as Teos notes in our show notes, really what this does is take away your move and your bonus action, but you get advantage on your next attack roll. Which is what you need for sneak attack. And it kind of goes to this debate that people often have of what does D&D intend for the rogue? Like if I had to think, what is one thing that's not super clear? It's sort of hiding and sneak attack. So maybe it's two things. But, um, but on the sneak attack, some people will say the intention really is sneak attack every round. And to which I will often say, yes, but. But it's not like it's a free always thing. It's mm-hmm. meant to be that there is a way you can get it, like an ally standing next to the, the foe. It's not because you're constantly hidden or because it's no cost at all. There is some tactical, you should be able to. Mm-hmm. And here's another way that they allow you to do it, but at that cost of giving up the bonus action and any movement, you can just focus, be precise, you know, and then make that one attack, right? And it can be melee or range. It sort of sounds like it's uh, range from the name of it, but it, right. it can be, you know, right there next to a target. Mm-hmm. You just can't move. Yeah, you, know, you make a great point in that having been through play tests of multiple editions now, the designers know what they want in terms of how off, how much damage output different classes should be able to do. So they should know how often they expect a rogue to have their sneak attack. And if they want it to be all the time, they should have just made it all the time Mm -hmm. and making it so convoluted or hard to achieve that it's only happening every once in a while, uh, can be disappointing to players of the rogue because this is your big thing. And we saw that in third edition, right? If it's all undead, yeah. no sneak yep. attack, right? All constructs. Mm-hmm. With with fourth edition, what I began to notice was that if the rogue character couldn't get a sneak attack, they basically didn't even care to attack. I I came up against that in many games I would run. Oh, you know, I can't get my extra 3d6 damage. Uh, I'm not even going to bother attacking. <laughs> to to the point where in the Essentials expansion of 4th edition, they gave the rogue a power, you do extra damage if you can't sneak attack. Yeah. And so, you know, that it just it Which was sort of yeah, it's it's sort of funny if you're if you're to the point where you need to do that, you may want to f- refigure the way it's it's done. Yeah. And so it's 
it's almost sort of, I don't know the best way to describe it. You know, if players are going to be so disappointed when they can't sneak attack, uh, then just give them sneak attack all the time and work that into the math of the game. What I like about this here is I think we're really close to where you always have it. Right. But what it's supposed to be is that you're, it, it's a mechanic for something that's also very hard to do in previous editions, which is to make the rogue feel like a rogue. Mm-hmm. And cunning action or steady aim, they are these sort of tactical things that allow you to do it, mm-hmm. right? Or working with your allies. That is the kind of thing that rogues do, right? The big guy distracts and then the little guy, you know, a little halfling comes up behind and, and sneak attacks. Like that that's the whole concept. And in AD and D, for people who played back then, you would literally spend like three rounds moving through shadows to get in a sneak attack. It was so right. bad. Yeah. And and that's what DMs required and the system required out of you was some just, you know, long explanation of how you're setting up this hit. Yeah. Oh, it was terrible. <laughs> yeah, it, it was. I mean, it was it was a whole game in and of itself to make that hide in shadows slash move silently or both roles in order to get behind your uh, target to, to hit them because it was backstab. It wasn't sneak attack. And so right, if, right, if you right, weren't right. in the back, you couldn't backstab. Yeah. So, uh, you know, we've come a long way, obviously, from we that. Have. Yeah, uh, this is actually. cool. I, I, I like this. It's another, oh. you know, doesn't mess with it too much. It's a, right. And it also isn't just entirely automatic, but mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, it does make you give up something in order to get that extra extra damage. So good on them. Yep. Um, so for the rogue archetypes, we have two that are presented. The phantom archetype, as well as the soul knife archetype. So for the phantom, the concept is uh, your rogue has a mystical connection to death itself. You take the knowledge of the dead and uh, through negative energy, you become like a ghost. Mm-hmm. So at third yeah. level, yeah, third level, you get whispers of the dead. So when you finish a short or a long rest, choose a skill or tool proficiency that you lack and you gain it. Thanks to a ghostly presence sharing its knowledge with you. Um, you lose that proficiency when you use a feature to take a different proficiency. All right. So I like this with one little thing that bothers me, and that is this finish shorter long rest is not the reset, but the actual point where you get it. Because what's the chance that I'm short resting? I know what proficiency I need. Right. Pretty much nil. So yeah. I'm just going to, you know, what do I do? Do I just use it to permanently have like another proficiency? You know, I probably have thieves tools. So I just, I don't, you know. Yeah. What I'd love to do is choose it when I need it, and I have to reset it with a short or long rest. Okay. I mean, it definitely becomes much more useful then, um, which if you want your game to uh, have your your characters feel useful when they need to, then that's a good way to do it, is to give them that choice at the moment they need it, for sure. Yeah. Uh, at third level, you get whales from the grave. Immediately after you deal your sneak attack damage to a creature on your turn, you can target a second creature that you can see within 30 feet of the first creature. Roll half the number of sneak attack dice for your level, round it up, and the second creature takes necrotic damage equal to the roll's total as whales of the dead sound around them for a moment. And then you can use this feature a number of times equal to your proficiency bonus, which you gain again after a long rest. Seems Um, cool. Yeah, I mean... 
thematically, I, sure, if you're going to make one of these sort of ghost whisperer kind of uh, <laughs> kind of rogues where it's like, okay, I just hit that guy, but he's going to scream over there 30 feet away. Yeah. Uh, sure. Doing it's doing a little bit of damage. 4E level of sort of fantasy, right? Versus yeah. Yep. initial 5E was fairly mundane in most cases. Right. This is very 4E type of design, but yep. but it's cool, mechanically works, and you know it keeps you engaged as a player for sure. Yep. Uh, at ninth level, you get tokens of the departed, which Teos will have a, a bit to talk about, I think. <laughs> so as a reaction, when a creature you can see dies within 30 feet of you, you open your free hand, okay, you have to have a free hand, and cause a tiny trinket to appear there, a soul trinket. The... DM determines the trinkets form or has you roll on the trinkets table. I never thought I'd see the trinkets table used in this sort of crunch uh, before, yeah. but, but here we go. Uh, you can have a maximum number of soul trinkets equal to your proficiency bonus, and you can't create one while you're at your maximum. Okay. So you know, someone dies and a trinket appears in your hand that mm -hmm. essentially contains their soul. Um, while a soul trinket is on your person, you have advantage on death saving throws and constitution saving throws for your vitality is enhanced by the life essence within the object. All right. Uh, when you deal sneak attack damage on your turn, you can destroy one of your soul trinkets that's on your person and then immediately use whales of the grave without expending a use of that feature. All right. As an action, you can destroy one of your soul trinkets, no matter where it's located. When you do so, you can ask the spirit associated with it one question. The spirit appears and answers your question, uh, appears to you and answers in a language it knew in life. Uh, under It's under no obligation to be truthful and it answers as concisely as possible, eager to be free. The spirit knows only what it knew in life as determined by the DM. All right. So. Teos, that's a whole lot to unpack there. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot. I mean, anytime there's that much, you have to think, did it need to have that much? Mm -hmm. But I, I do like options. I'm torn on this design, Sean. I don't know what to think. I, 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 I do like having a choice of options where some of them are story rich. And so I do like this whole, like, crush a soul trinket and ask it a question. Um, you know, the DM is sort of up, can answer however they want. The only part I don't like about this is the language at new in life bit because come on, like, right? You know, like why limit it? Why why just D and D yeah. seems to be so hung up on communication time and times, and I like it when it forces fun, mm -hmm. but here it's just literally like it's just a limit, right? Like oh well, I didn't speak Goblin, I guess I can't do anything right. out of that one, and yeah, just yeah. let it get some info from the spirit, you know? Come on. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I think this, I love, you know, I like the, you have this trinket, the flavor of it, it's cool. Yeah, it does these, like you said, there might be just one too many things. Because uh, you, you, by you know, higher levels, you might have four trinkets, five trinkets. Uh, you know, then now you're keeping track of your trinkets. Uh, do I have, oh, I just got one. Do I have three or four? Oh, wait, I'm going to crush it. Uh, I have advantage. Wait, did I just use my last one? Yeah. Uh, I, you know, it's, it's a, a little much and it does a lot, but you know, if, if you can, if you're into that sort of granular and multifaceted powers, then this is a great one for you. And it's whenever a creature dies within 30 of you, it doesn't have to be by your hand. True. 
but it does use your reaction. So it's sort of you give up your reaction to pull one in. That's the only case where you might not do it. I was sort of thinking like you can kind of just endlessly fuel your sneak attack, right? Like you can do this whales of the grave mm-hmm. um, sort of endlessly with without expending a use of that feature by killing trinkets. And so, you know, if every round something is dying within 30 of you, every round you can do some extra whales of the grave. Mm-hmm. That's pretty powerful. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. It, it's interesting. Yeah, and I ha- guess, can you do whales of the grave and then do it again, I guess? Let's see. Immediately for whales of the grave, immediately after you attack, you could target a second creature. It doesn't use an action. Um, Right, it's not a bonus action to do it. You just do it. So, and you get a certain number of features. The question is whether you could do it twice. Maybe they just mean you can do it without losing a use. It's probably what it is. Right, right. But probably like, like you said, twice, you know, if but... if you're high level and you're fighting a large group of really low CR creatures, you can just, you know, trinket on your turn, sneak attack, crush. Then the round starts again. Reaction, yeah, mm-hmm. you can yep. really keep going. So, again, if that's if that's the fun for you, uh, you now have the ability to do a lot. <laughs> yeah, At if you th- like to be busy as a player, this is yeah, great. yeah, right. you've got your <laughs> for sure. to track. <laughs> At thirteenth level, you get Ghost Walk as a bonus action. You assume a spectral form. While in this form, you have a flying speed of ten feet. You can hover, and attack rolls have disadvantage against you. Uh, you can also move through creatures and objects as if they were difficult terrain, but you take 1d10 force damage if you end your turn inside a creature or an object, uh, and you stay in this form for 10 minutes until you end it as a bonus action. And then you need a long rest to recharge this, or you can destroy a soul trinket mm-hmm. um, and get and refresh it. So Yeah, sweet. Seems yep. pretty powerful. I mean, disadvantage on attacks against you is sweet. You can fly... Yeah, and being able to move uh, through objects and, and creatures, I mean, you can scout out, go through the gate, get, mm-hmm. you know, uh, through a chest maybe, or at least look inside of it, put your head inside of a chest, I guess, yeah. things like yeah. that. So very interesting. And it's not like you can't attack as far as I can tell. No, you can totally attack. I, so, yeah. and that's kind of, yeah, really strong. You could, it doesn't say you can't actually, it doesn't say you can't interact with objects, which is sort of interesting. Mm-hmm. Right. If you can attack, so you could theoretically like break into a place, unlock the look inside the chest, then unlock it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's a lot you could possibly do that's sort of very interesting. Yeah. Powerful. Cool. And, and it is powerful, which is which I'm fine with. Um, mm-hmm. The being able. This goes back again, though, to that trinket thing. Being able to recharge it with your trinket. Uh, if you see, because here, here's here's where you get the people who bring the bag of rats with them. Right. And okay, 10 minutes are up. Kill the rat. Boom. I have a soul trinket. I have a little marble oh, rat. I've forgotten about that. Yeah. Yeah. And now, oh, I break that now for 10 more minutes. So, as, yeah, as many rats as you can bring with you, you have soul trinkets. And as many soul trinkets as you have, you have ghost block abilities. So, again, it's, you know, it's, it's just think, think one more step. And and see how this can be abused. And you know, as the DM, you can always say, "No, you can't do that." But it's got to be in battle. Yeah, exactly. You know, some kind of yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. That, but yeah, that is interesting. The bag of rats. That is a design thing that we would see at times, where if you fuel things through the death of something, mm-hmm. expect some players to come up with the idea of mm-hmm. carrying a bag of whatever it is that they right. 
kill whenever they need. Yep. Yep. Uh, colony, uh, my ant colony. Oh, look mm -hmm. at this. Yeah. Oh, I cr crushed a little ant. Uh, so at 17th <laughs> level, you get death's friend. Your association with death has become so close that you gain the following benefits. When you use your whales from the grave, you can deal the necrotic damage to both the first and the second creature. So you are the creature you sneak attack also takes the damage from the whales of the grave. And at the end of a long rest, a soul trinket appears in your hand if you don't have any soul trinkets as the spirits of the dead are drawn toward you. So you always have a trinket. Yeah. Uh, pretty cool. You know, that's, that's some strong. You're getting half your sneak attack dice on top of your normal sneak attack. That's yep. juicy. So, yeah. But you're 17th, so it all works at that mm -hmm. level. Or yeah. it doesn't. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> what, what works at 17th level? Oh, you have to play to find out. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Your DM will let you know. Exactly. You can study their body language and facial features. <laughs> yep. At, uh, oh, so that is yeah. at subclass. The second subclass is Soul Knife. Uh, so the concept of the Soul Knife is basically the psionic rogue. You can strike with the power of your mind. Uh, but third level, you get the psionic power. A harbor, you harbor a wellspring of psionic energy within yourself. This energy is represented by your psionic energy dice, which are each a D6. You have a number of these equal to twice your proficiency bonus. So at first level, you have four, if my math yeah. is correct there. Uh, that is correct. And they, yeah. and they fuel various psionic powers you have, which are detailed below. Um, some of your powers expend these psionic energy dice. So uh, you know, you'll have to keep track of them. It's specified in the power's description whether it uses the, uses the die or not. You can't use a power if it requires you to use a die, and you don't have any dice. If you, re, uh, you regain all your expended dice, psionic energy dice, when you finish a long rest. In addition, as a bonus action, you can regain one expended psionic energy die, but you can't do that until you take a... Uh, you can only do it once, then you need to take a short or a long rest. So, so interesting is a little built-in plus one nudge to the math. Exactly, exactly. So when you, uh, as you level, the size of your psionic energy die increases to eight, one d eight at fifth level, to a d ten at eleventh level, and to a d twelve at seventeenth level. Mm -hmm. Now, what special things can you do with your psionic energy dice? You may be asking. Yeah. Well, we're about to tell you. You have psi bolstered knack, K N A C K. Uh, band or album exactly so when your uh non-psionic training fails you your psionic power can help if you fail an ability check using a skill or a tool with which you have proficiency you can roll one psionic energy die and add the number rolled to a check potentially turning failure into success uh, you expend the die only if you then succeed with the roll okay yeah I, I, I'm totally fine with that. Uh, my question immediately that came to mind was, all right, I'm playing with a bard also, and he has given me his bardic inspiration die. Mm -hmm. So I do I then choose which one to use? Do I then roll both and take the higher number? What if I fail because of my psionic die, but then succeed because of my bardic inspiration die? Does that count as a failure? So I... Do, so I keep the die or a success so I don't? I think in most cases, what we'd say is because they have different names, they quote-unquote stack. 
or add is what I would expect. So you See, could I do it, both. Yeah, I would say you could do both, but you don't add them together. So I would because they're different. Yeah. They're so, a... so right, right now we have, you know, mm -hmm. this is us basically reading these just a few yeah, minutes yeah, ago. Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> the first, you know, we have already have a rules question about which we differ. Um, so, yeah, that's and, and that's fine. Now, it may not super matter, right? Because generally, I mean, you, know, you can always roll a one, but generally a rogue proficient in something usually does pretty well. Mm -hmm. And so then throwing in, you know, some D, whatever it is, you know, what is it, D8 at fifth, like you're generally going to be succeeding at this role with that bolster. Um, but hey, also, if you have, didn't... Have, have you met my dice? <laughs> That's fair. I, I, I'm just I asking. I just run a table last yesterday <laughs> that where this was not the case, but yeah. Right. Fair. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's... I, I like it. I like mm -hmm. the flavor and I like the mechanic. Uh, just, you know, just another thing to be aware of. Yep. You know, I think we're to the point in, in fifth edition D&D now where the DM really has to start making some judgment calls about a lot of this stuff. Because as you well know, the more rules you get, the, the more complicated the machine gets, the more likely it is to break down. And, uh, so you have to, as the DM, almost act as the mechanic of the rules as well as the teller of the stories and the arbiter of the outcomes. Totally. Uh, you will, can also use your psionic dice, psionic energy dice, excuse me. I have to be very precise here. Uh, for something called psychic whispers, you can establish telepathic communication between yourself and others. Perfect for quiet infiltration. As an action, choose one or more creatures you can see, up to a number of creatures equal to your proficiency bonus, and then roll one psionic energy die. For a number of hours equal to that number rolled, the chosen creature can speak telepathically with you, and you can speak telepathically with them. To send an, or receive a message, no action required, you and the other creature must be within one mile of each other. A creature can't use telepathy if it doesn't speak any languages, and a creature can end the telepathic connection at any time with no action required. Uh, you and the creature don't need to speak a common language to understand each other. Whew. Okay. That's a lot. Um, but it's cool, right? So basically, it's like Rary's telepathic bond, which is a mm -hmm. fairly high-level spell, mm -hmm. um, but limited by your proficiency bonus, action to get it going, and it lasts hours based on the psionic energy die you roll and then you're just all speaking telepathically and what i find super fascinating about this is this is sort of a departure from typical 5e design mm -hmm. where dnd &D generally says that any kind of like spell or whatever like tongues or comprehend languages it's always really limited like it's you know you can understand them but they still can't understand you and so you still play the pantomime game but you're a little bit better off and this is literally telepathy it is and broke the mold yeah it's, uh, it's unusual but my my thought with all of these telepathy powers that that are out there is unless you're dealing with an npc metagaming pretty much gives your characters telepathy right cuz sure. you you're sitting at the table with other players you know that even though that rogue snuck ahead uh, and is around the corner, you know what's happening to the rogue. Yeah. You no, but I'm thinking more about, well, yeah. And, and so what this does is legally let you be like in different rooms and fully metagame. Right. But I'm thinking really of NPCs, right? Like, sure. Where often we, you know, the wizard might take tongues because of that one, mm -hmm. you know, oddball case. 
Here, you've got this third level power that you could at any point burn a die mm -hmm. and perfect clarity, two-way communication telepathically. That's pretty rare that you see that in D&D being offered to you. True. That's, very, that's very true. For the NPC side of things. So that is, uh, that is the hmm. first sort of third level version of, of that. Um, mm -hmm. And the first time you use this power after each long rest, you don't expend a psionic energy die. All the other times you use the power, you do. So you get one freebie there, basically. Yeah. Uh, and, so, I, and I guess by this power, they mean one of them? Uh, I think it is. I think that covers both. Okay. But I am not. Psychic a, Whispers only. I'm trying to look at the formatting. Yeah, the, the formatting. It might just be part I'm, of Psychic Whispers. Okay. That, then you get one free Psychic Whispers. Yeah, the other thing that was interesting was that side bolstered knack that you expend the die only if the roll succeeds, right? So you're encouraged yep. to sort of use it. Yep. That's cool. Uh, at third level, you also get psychic blades. And this is what we always think about, I think, when we think of the the, the soul knife. Mm -hmm. is uh, you manifesting your psychic power into a blade of psychic energy. When you take the attack action, you can manifest a psychic blade from your free hand and make the attack with that blade. The magic blade is a simple melee weapon with the finesse and throne properties has a normal range of 60 feet and no long range and on a hit it deals 1d6 plus the ability modifier that you use to the attack roll for damage the blade vanishes immediately after it hits or misses its target and it leaves no mark on the target if it deals damage then after you attack with the blade, you can make a melee or ranged weapon attack with a second psychic blade as a bonus action on the same turn, provided that your other hand is free to create it. The uh, damage die of this uh, bonus attack is a D4 rather than a D6. So you get your basic two-weapon fighting, uh, except uh, you can add your modifier to the second attack, it looks like. Yeah. Because uh, it doesn't say you can't. Right. And this is what you think about. So mechanically, what uh, what comes to mind? Yeah, it's sort of like two weapon fighting, but but a little better. Um, and the only downside, I think, is that you know, as a rogue, your bonus action is often cunning action. And so you, if you want, you you know, as a player, mentally, it kind of you want to always be doing the second attack because that's how you're getting your power here, your damage. Mm -hmm. um, but to do that, you must give up that cunning action. So that's that's a, a trade-off. Yeah, and a lot of times you'll only see rogues using that bonus action to get another attack if they missed with their first attack and lost their sneak attack damage. Yeah. yeah. Right? So right. they need that's why they want that second attack. They yeah. always have that dagger in the offhand in case they miss with their short sword in the in the uh, main hand. You know, I, I always like looking at the tribality.com uh, thoughts. And here is pointed out on, on the article where they looked at this a, a rogue. They, they looked at how or noted how you only create the weapon. You manifest it as you attack. And whether you hit or miss, it vanishes. So it's sort of this momentary weapon in your hand. What that means is you don't have a weapon in your hands when it's not your turn. So like opportunity actions or anything like that. You, ha you are weaponless for those. Mm -hmm. And they actually were like, I wonder if we're going to see errata because you know, that's a rough thing that, you know, getting sneak attack off turn mm -hmm. can be helpful. So, like, imagine that someone gives you uh, some feature that lets you, you know, cause damage. It wouldn't, unless it is an attack right. action, 
you would not be able to summon a psychic blade. Right. Yeah, and, and that's right, that's the wording. The wording of a warlord type that gives you an attack. It usually says, you know, the creature can use its reaction to make an attack, to make a melee attack, mm-hmm. but it doesn't say the attack action. Right. So they would not be able to manifest the uh, yeah. the weapon at that point. And it, it does make you wonder, was that done deliberately or yeah. was it or an not? oversight? Yeah. And along the same lines, you know, we see this with monks. We see this with, with other subclasses that have this sort of idea of like attacking in a non-standard way that, that creates this conflict between what you do and magic item economy. Mm-hmm. Where usually the rest, you know, you might see the rest of the people in your party get like a plus one weapon or whatever. And you would have done that if you were a regular rogue. But now you don't use other things. You use this stuff and you need your hands empty. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you're not getting up in that plus one, plus two range of attack and damage that you might if you were getting magic items maybe the rest of the way of the party is, depending mm-hmm. on your campaign. So that's always a little bit of a trade-off that I feel like designers don't always capture, you know, mm-hmm. that they need a sure. little bump because of that. Yep. Let's see if they make up for it elsewhere in these abilities. So let's look at level nine, soul blades. Your psychic blades are now an expression of your psi-suffused soul. Say that 10 Oof. times fast. Giving you these powers that your that use your psychic energy dice. So you have a couple of choices here. Homing strike. When you make an attack roll with your psychic blades and miss the target, you can roll one psionic energy die and add the number rolled to the attack roll. This causes, if this causes the attack to hit, you expend the psychic energy die. So cool. there you're getting a plus based on your die. Uh, the second thing under Soul Blades is psychic teleportation. As a bonus action, you manifest one of your psychic blades. Expend one psionic energy die and roll it and throw the blade at an unoccupied space you can see up to a number of feet away equal to 10 times the number rolled. You then teleport to a spit to that space and the blade vanishes. Uh, I I think that's cool. Uh, mm-hmm. I just I, I hate this idea. I don't hate this idea. I question the idea of you throw the blade. uh some number of feet. Yeah. It, what I fear when I when I see something like this is that DMs are going to say, well, you're really attacking a space with a thrown weapon. So I need an attack roll. What, but the power doesn't say that. Well, I'm going to say it does. Rather than just say, roll your die, teleport to a square up to 10 Next times the number rolled to that square. Uh, Flavor-wise, cool may t- take a little bit of uh, DM discretion to not mess around yeah. with that. Yeah, ten to eighty feet at you know ninth level is what you're traveling. It already is random, so I, yeah, I would not require an attack roll, but I could see some DMs demanding it or de- demanding it in certain situations. Right. Yeah, it, it maybe doesn't need to have this level of complexity but it could yeah. also you know it can also be fun and funny when you roll up one and so you can only teleport 10 feet and you're like, <laughs> yeah oh. yeah yeah it's true uh so at 13th level you get psychic veil you can weave a veil of psychic static to mask yourself as an action you can magically become invisible along with anything you are wearing or carrying for one hour or until you dismiss the effect with no action required 
This invisibility ends early, uh, immediately after you deal damage to a creature, or you force a creature to make a saving throw. Okay, yep. so not if not just if you attack, but if you deal damage. Yeah, or force a save. So yep. if you did spells somehow, it would still get co- captured. Okay. Yeah. Yep. And uh, once you use this feature, you can't do so again until you finish a long rest, unless you expend a psionic energy die to use this feature again. No, no big problems with that. I mean, it's yeah. it's a thirteenth level thing that I could see lots of things uh, working with, so no problem. Yeah, it's neat. I mean, what I like it, it's a very long time. You know, an hour until you dismiss it or do a thing that causes it to end. So that gives you a superb long time for infiltration i like that that's fun yep and at 17th level you get rend mind Uh, you can sweep your psychic blades directly through a creature's mind when you use your psychic blades to deal sneak attack damage to a creature you can force that target to make a wisdom saving throw the uh which the dc is eight plus your proficiency bonus plus your dex uh if the save fails the target is stunned for one minute the target can repeat the saving throw at the end of each of its turns, ending it on a success. And then once you use this feature, you can't do so again until you finish a long rest unless you expend three psionic energy dice to use it again. Teos has thoughts. It's just what every DM asked for. Could there be another way for my boss to get stunned? I mean, if the monk doesn't pull it off, could the rogue maybe do it? Yeah, or or the any number of spells that would do it. Yeah, but I think I like that it at least gives you the save at the end. I mean, it is still this is just there are so many cases where D and D I think just struggles when when you have a boss mm-hmm. stun any of that kind of thing can be just so hard. Um, so I always think of that because it's it's tough. Yep. DMs think thrilling combat and you might stun it and it might roll fail to save. You know, three rounds in a, in a in a row and that's just the worst and so yeah. I, I don't super love that kind of thing but the rest of the time it's totally fine and you yep. know seems neat but yeah or more likely at 17th level using up one of its uh three free yeah yeah the uh, legendary legendary yep. yeah mm-hmm. and uh and yeah i would if i was designing this and if i'm ever running this uh any monster that's immune to psychic damage would be immune to this Mm. you know that's cool yeah i often give bosses a way to end really bad effects too through paying a price in hit points or something like that if it's an important story type thing but but sometimes you want to just let players get their sweet sweet victory in you know and that's fine too it is yeah overall cool right like i thought there were two pretty flavorful good themes yeah yeah i yeah they 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 seem fun to play uh for rope players that would like to play a rogue character they all have that sort of theme uh sneaky quiet uh invisibility mm-hmm. incorporeal all that sort of stuff yeah i still feel like i want psionicists to be a class rather than subclasses within each piece mm-hmm. but you know that general approach aside i mean it's pretty fun so let's switch over to the DM side of Tasha's Cauldron of Everything and look at the Dungeon Master's tools from Chapter 4. Today we're going to look at parlaying with monsters. Uh, so this wasn't a horribly long section, but I have a feeling we'll find a way to, to talk about it for hours <laughs> anyway. <know> <laughs> so 
could you want to give us a summary of this section uh, to let us know your expertise on this topic? Yeah, you know, I, I find it uh, sort of interesting how it's written in that it doesn't super tell us what it's going to give us up front. It just sort of says, hey, when you meet a monster, you don't have to spark a fight. And that if you give it offerings that might calm hostile monsters and sapient creatures often prefer to talk. And then immediately refers to the Dungeon Master's Guide to that if adventurers try to parley, improvise based on social interaction rules in the DMG with advantage on the check if they offer something that the creature wants. Mm -hmm. I kind of felt like this felt to me like a section that maybe was edited, like more was turned in or because it feels... Like it's been shaped to just sort of pull it off, but there there could have been more. And, and in mm-hmm. fact, I want this section to have more than it offers okay. here. Uh, what it goes on to do is sort of give you ideas on how what you can learn what a monster wants and then how you can sort of uh, use these desires. Well, it gives the DM the resource to tell the players what the desires might be so that theoretically, when the adventurers want to parlay, the DM knows how to how to create a check for that situation and how to come up with something that the monster wants, and then the players would act upon that knowledge. Okay. And um, yeah, to, to, as a as a DM, then do you think that is something you didn't already know as an experienced DM, or? Well, I, you know, I've been doing this. I think you and I, we've been doing it so many times in so many ways through all of organized play and home campaigns that we have our own approaches for this. And, and what I try to think is, you know, what if I'm not me and mm-hmm. I'm looking for help? And, and, and to me, I saw a lot of questions in this section where it doesn't tell you the most important thing is how do I prevent my characters from just murderizing everything? Right. And it just, you know, its premise is your player's don't want to murder it and want to talk to it. And, and I think that there's a real missing section here on how to create that effect, right? And we've talked about this when we review monsters, you know, there's a section in rhyme where clearly there was a super fun stuff if you parlay, but nothing necessarily says, Hey, there's a reason to parlay. And, and it was fun to hear comments from someone on Twitter saying like, Hey, I did what you recommended and I added these different things. And then we had a really cool scene. Yeah. And, and I think that's where this could have been this sort of knowledge sharing that could have said, here's how to encourage the kind of play and scenes that lead to parlay and lead to you, the use of these social interaction rules. Right. Um, well, here's, yeah. a, here's a good tip. Don't roll initiative <laughs> yeah. uh, if you want or expect the characters to talk to the monsters. Yeah. Just start talking to the monsters and then only roll initiative when it's for sure going to go sideways because when you roll initiative a you're you're it's almost a pavlovian response of the player to want to do the coolest thing the strongest thing possible on their turn and second of all you're putting all the onus of what's going to happen onto one player yeah yeah and if i do uh have a like an initiative situation what i then like to do is to have regular intervals where that are atypical where I inform the player or players about something that's happening mm-hmm. uh, as a development so that they know something's up, right? There's a reason why the DM just told me how the monster keeps looking over to the side at the stack of books mm-hmm. or something like that, right? If that's happening every other initiative count, maybe we should really think about what that 
provides and make an informed choice, right? Then, yeah. yeah. Um, it does here tie into the DMG social interaction rules, which very quickly are a four-step process. You decide what the uh, uh, starting attitude is, friendly, indifferent, or hostile. Then the idea is play out the conversation, allow the, the both sides to kind of have a conversation. The characters can make good points. The DM decides whether the attitude should shift. So maybe you were indifferent and they said really terrible things and now it's hostile or maybe it becomes friendly. Um, the characters may also learn about the creatures and adjust their approach. And then after there's been this op opportunity for interaction, the idea is that you then call for a charisma check. And the DMG gives us these tables, one for each of friendly and different hostile, where there are these three DCs, 0, 10, and 20, and each of them has a result. So if the creature is friendly, a DC 0 is it will do whatever you asked as long as it's not a big risk because it's already friendly. So sure, I'll help you, right? You didn't, you, a zero and I, you still get my help. I'm friendly. Right. But if it's indifferent, a DC zero is, I'm not going to help you or harm you. I'm, guess what? Indifferent, right? Mm -hmm. And so it, and in that way, and, and you, but you can, if you, you know, get a low roll for something that's doesn't like you, it's going to attack you, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then the, the DM step four is repeat question mark, which is that usually you can't, but maybe there's some reason why you could uh, repeat the check when the DM decides that. So that's kind of the DMG rules. And what we get here is we get this monster research section, which tells us what uh, it gives a table of the different types of monsters, like an aberration or a fiend or a giant. And for each one, what the applicable skill should be. So a giant is history an ooze is arcana of survival. The default, uh, the DC is 10 plus the CR of the creature. Mm -hmm. So it's a CR2 ooze. I need to roll a 12 on either Arcana or Survival to know what this, something about this monster. And this kind of reminded me of like 4th edition where it had a sort of wider monster knowledge check you could make, right? And it was in yeah. the rules. Yep. And I, I'm both a huge fan and a huge uh, hater of that rule. Um, mm -hmm. because it, it can be, you know, in depending on the situation, you may, as the DM, want the characters to learn that secret that's going to help them. Uh, but in other cases where it's just a fight with a random monster, you don't want every character, you know, having to make that check. Oh, I only got an eight. I don't know what this monster does. The next character. Well, I'm going to, can I make my arcana check to know about this magic monster? Oh, I only got a 10. Oh, okay. The next, uh, you know, and it's just until they learn everything that they can about the monster, they're <laughs> the hesitant to do anything. You're right. Exactly. Uh, so yeah, I would say it's good to have that information available to you as the DM, but also, you don't want to slow your game down to the point where all it is is a you know a nature show. Yeah. <laughs> Look at the giant uh, centipede. Notice yeah. how its tail is dripping venom. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's it's just uh, you know l learn it while you play, as opposed to making yeah. all these checks before the combat even gets going. And you'll get this a lot with players that, that play it a lot of fourth edition. They want to still make these monster knowledge checks. Can I make oh. an arcana check to know, you know, whether it is resistant? You know, no, not for the rules. And what's interesting about this piece is technically what this is, 
but it, it's easy to read and not see this. And then again, you kind of have to wonder whether this is the full intent. But here it really says, adventurers can research what a creature is likely to desire. And that's what this check is really supposed to be. So it's not supposed right. to be what are its resistances or what is its special attack form or whatever. It's yep. really supposed to be what does the monster want? But, you know, you can decide to what extent you want to move in different directions with it. Yeah, and, and the, the problem, I mean, it's it's a cool thought. The problem with that is monsters can be just as varied as people in what they want right what does the vampire want well uh other than blood possibly anything right right what does the dragon want but and and then you get to what does the carrion crawler want well the carrion crawler doesn't really care much wants to eat your head because it's hungry so it's let's uh, let's see what it so here's what it does right it gives you these monster desire tables and it's a table by type so hats off to them for trying to cover the gamut right and each of them has four options so you roll a d4 to randomly determine what the monster might want so if we have an aberration it may want the brain or other organs of a rare creature Mm -hmm. or flattery and obsequiousness (laughs) or secrets or lore it doesn't already have Right or accepting a strange organic graft onto your body, woo! Yeah, that's a wide range we can play with. Yes, the, the this gibbering mouther wants to be flattered, whereas <laughs> this one, yeah, it's. I mean, it's it's, it's, it's like it's like a lot of tables in D anD D for me. Right, it's fun and it can, mm-hmm. can contain a lot of great ideas, but you want to tailor it to the situation that you're in. Yeah, and there are some here that are like, like plants is hilarious. It has a pound of mulch as an option, <laughs> but also water from a spring infused with fair wild energy. Oh, and boy. so first I'm thinking like, how did your check tell you any of these things? Which right. is sort of its own funny thing. You know, you sense that this plant, you know, right. this treant really wants a spring infused with fair wild <laughs> energy. So, you know, go get that. Go find that. Yeah uh okay that's a big thing versus a pound of mulch is a little easier hey look the leaves from over here i'm just gonna <laughs> drop them on you great uh, we're good uh, oh we have some funny ones we've got a bunch of fertilizer for you plant <laughs> <laughs> we got you exactly covered yeah what your players would do Sean. exactly i know exactly but but yeah, you know, that's the thing is these are great ideas yeah. a great spring for ideas if you will uh but it, it also has to be tailored to the adventure. Yeah, like the construct has oil for its joints. There are, right. yeah, that's the thing. There's some really fun ideas, but you must. And, and I think what this section doesn't super do is again help you know what to do. And so I, I could see a new DM that just sort of says like, "Okay, this is gonna be so fun when they find out that the construct wants oils for its joints. Oh, they're just killing it, right? Like." Or, or, you know, we met a fun creature and I told him, you know, plant creature, we told him they had to get, you know, I rolled that it. it had to be water from a spring infused with Feywild energy, but there isn't one in this adventure. Uh, so, yeah. you know, I think a little more handholding would have been good as to what this yeah. does. But. And then you always get the opposite problem. Uh, you know, the characters that the players that will not talk to any creature, even when you as the DM want them to, or even when the yeah. story sort of points them in that direction. But then they'll come up against the monster that all it wants to do is kill them and eat their heads. And they try to talk to it. <laughs> Invariably. <laughs> and, and you know, they're, they're making all these roles. Or, you know, I'm making arcana checks. I'm making nature checks. What, you know, uh, and, and I'm just like, it, it's foaming at the mouth and just yeah, yeah. coming at you full bore. Uh, uh, yeah. The lycanthrope under the full moon continues to stab you. 
exactly It'll bite you yeah <laughs> i think maybe if we just stopped attacking it no no yeah so i like that when uh when players i find that when characters fail at a check to where they you can sense that there could have been a diplomatic solution and then it becomes fighting someone always wants to just keep trying and it's like yeah, yeah and that ship has sailed like you went down hard and now right. it's a fight time but they're like what if yeah yeah i like to give them something just to feed off of that right like right. if their intention was to try to try again uh and undo the things it might not fully do that but maybe someone else hesitates right that monster pauses for a round and and then they convince to keep fighting just a little something right you want to uh, you want to give them something, you give the players something to feed off of and to feel good about for at least trying something different. But you, you can't right. break the story by having, well, the monster you've just almost killed, now is, wants to be your best friend. Uh, but I think the, it's the like lesson Monty we've Python. learned... Yeah, yes, exactly. You killed so, my auntie. I, yeah, let's, let's not bicker and argue about who killed who. It's supposed <laughs> to be a happy occasion. Uh, so, I, But I think we'll... At least they took the time, uh, being Wizards of the Coast, took the time to remind DMs that not everything needs to be a fight. And if you don't want everything to be a fight, do a little bit of thinking beforehand about what could right. cause a monster to to not uh, become just a wrecking machine. Yeah, and just by providing these rules, they are helping DMs to think through different tools, right? You might not look up this table but you, having read the table, are a little more prepared for the kind of improvisation you can do when these situations come up. Well, the monster wants something. What does it want? You know, mm -hmm. it wants that thing from over in the dungeon. That, that, and actually, those are often the best, best things. They're something that links to other parts of the adventure, right? Like, they want what that other creature down the hall has. Or, mm -hmm. you know, for their boss to stop picking on them. Can you get that from me? You know, like, those are always just super interesting interactions. Yeah. So to quote Teo's favorite band, so what you, what you, what you want? <laughs> what you want? <laughs> mm -hmm. Yep. Any, any Beastie Boys reference, Teos is right there. I, I'm ready for it. Uh, okay. So uh, thank you for putting up with us for another whole hour plus of D&D Talk. And thank you to our patrons. If you would like to become a patron of the show, you can do so by going to patreon.com slash MMP. Hey, Teos, where can people find you, your work, your social media, your outlook on life? Uh, I am found on Twitter at AlphaStream, and I'm also on the Misdirected Mark forums, where I know you are as well, forums at misdirectedmark.com, and I have a blog, alphastream.org. Yes, and you can find me on Twitter at Sean Merwin, or you can follow the podcast on Twitter at MasteringDND. Mastering Dungeons is a misdirected Mark production, the media arm of Encoded Designs. So, Teos, what should we do now that we have a weekend to spend playing D&D? Well, uh, I am going to find a cloth bearing a noxious odor, which is uh, entry two on the ooze table. Mm. I probably have several of those lying around my house. <laughs> That's what it wants, so. Uh, that's for sure. So that's what we're going to do this weekend. I'm going to give the ooze what it wants. <laughs> <laughs>